Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got two segments today. First, I speak to two of the folks behind Mozilla's award-winning podcast, IRL. This year, Mozilla decided to publish its Internet Health Report as a series of podcast episodes delving into the experiences of people building AI and working on AI policy. The series digs into a range of topics, including surveillance, labor, healthcare, geospatial data, and disinformation on social media. And then we'll hear from William Fry, a researcher and PhD candidate at Columbia University and the lead author of a new paper titled Digital White Racial Socialization, Social Media and the Case of Whiteness. First up, let's get into Mozilla's new podcast series. My name is Solana Larson, and I'm the editor of Mozilla's annual Internet Health Report. I'm Bridget Todd, and I am the host of Mozilla's podcast, IRL. Solana, tell us about the Internet Health Report. How long has it been going, and what led you to produce it in such a strange fashion this year? It's the fifth edition of the Internet Health Report this year, and we've changed the format slightly every year. Um, The focus, the format, the idea was always to give a broad overview of what is the health of the internet and where is it at right now? What's healthy, what's unhealthy, what are the things that we can really improve on? And so it's always been a compilation of research from a lot of different sources um, about different topics, and then a really strong focus on what can actually be done, um, which I think is something that people you know, are willing to look to Mozilla for guidance on is like, what kind of tech can be can we build? What kind of policy can we make? Like, what are the things that we can constructively do other than just complaining that everything is terrible? Because that doesn't get us anywhere. And so this year, I think we thought, all right, we have the, the compendium, the, the collection of research and data visuals that show something about, you know, where we're at with AI. But let's have let's have the response be spoken. Let's hear from people who are, you know, actually making a different future. And AI, because it's one of the biggest challenges facing the health of the internet right now. So instead of collecting your findings in a PDF and posting it to the web the way that uh, most think tanks and foundations do these days, um, you've brought in uh, Bridget Todd, who has been on this podcast before. Bridget, what got you involved in this project? Oh, well, I've been a longtime fan of everything that Mozilla does. Um, the people who are there, they really just care so much about the health and the safety of our internet. And so do I. And so I'm a huge, huge fan of the work that they do. And kind of like what Solana was saying, I think that so many organizations put out reports and graphics and this and that to demonstrate what's happening with the health and the well-being of the internet. But there's just something about hearing people who are on the front lines of that work, hearing their stories and their experiences in their own words that is so intimate and also so moving. And so I think the decision to make this this iteration of the um, report a podcast was a really great one because, yeah, just hearing these people's voices and stories, I think, can really push folks to to action and, and want to be sort of meaningfully engaged in the work. What can folks expect to find? What are the episodes about and how many of them are there? There are five episodes. Uh, 
that are going to be rolling out bi-weekly, so every other week. They've done such a great job of making it sort of accessible and down to earth. It's not at all wonky. It's not at all, you know, overly technical. So it's really just sort of, you know, oh, if you're someone who cares about the internet, how did you come to this work? What brought you to this work? What is the emotional experience of doing this work like for you? Um, so definitely story-driven. And yeah, they're tackling everything from, you know, gig work to maps to um, killer robots to health and, uh, you know, healthcare. Until making this show, I don't think I understood how many issues in our everyday life intersect with AI. And so bringing those stories to life on the podcast has just been a, a fantastic journey. Solana, was this also a way of kind of looking forward, maybe kind of getting beyond the content moderation issues that so many folks in the tech policy space have been focused on for the last few years? Yeah, um, for sure. It's about looking forward because it's about thinking and imagining a different reality. Like thinking, I think there's so many ways that AI works now, the ways that AI is deployed now that we sort of take for granted. But a lot of the time it's like big tech setting the tone for how it's done, you know, how data is collected, how, you know, what we're supposed to be using for it. How do we maximize efficiencies and do different things? And then hearing from a group of people or a number of people who are doing things in a different way can be a real eye opener for, oh, we could actually be thinking about this differently. Are we really clear about who AI is working for in different circumstances? And what if we flip things around? You know, what if the algorithms were working for the gig workers and not just for the for the platforms? You know, what if the AI were working for the patients and not just for the pharmaceutical industry or the, you know, the, the medical providers. And there are a whole bunch of questions you can ask, you know, where you're, you're thinking about, well, who is the beneficiary in this scenario? Um, and how would we change that around? How could people be collecting more of their own data or sharing more of their own data on their own terms and then using that with AI that serves an entirely different purpose than we're used to thinking about? So you've got a variety of different areas of focus. I see surveillance and warfare, um, as you mentioned, power imbalances between employers and, and gig workers, uh, data gaps uh, in location mapping, election disinformation, AI bias in healthcare, medicine. Um, Bridget, is there a particular topic that you've covered in this series so far uh, that has, I don't know, changed your perspective on it? I would say the one that stuck with me the most was the um, engineer who sadly lost his wife to melanoma and then used that experience to create technology that would allow Black folks and folks of color to, um, you know, analyze our skin for issues like skin cancer, right? Like that's something that I never, I just sort of accepted, you know, as a black person, I just sort of accepted that we would always get worse treatment and always get, you know, overlooked when it comes to treatment of something that can be so serious. And the fact that there's someone out there trying to change that and make it more equitable using technology, I think really shifted my understanding of what we can expect from technology and, and how technology can actually serve us in ways that are life-saving and critical. And so that really changed my understanding because I think I, I had been used to um, I, I don't know. I, I have been sort of accustomed to expecting less than when it comes to technology. And so just the idea that someone is using technology to actually bring a little bit of equality into the equation uh, just really changed my perspective. Mm -hmm. Solana, when you were talking about 
making AI work for us in these various use cases. Uh, and Bridget, hearing you talk about applying uh, artificial intelligence in a particular use case that may not necessarily benefit the majority, but rather, uh, you know, the minority in this case. I'm, I'm wondering if there's a sort of tension between, I guess, the kind of capitalist logic of artificial intelligence. Is that part of what you're trying to get at? That might be a part of it. I think the thing that we're trying to highlight is that often AI is used to oppress and often AI is part of carceral systems or racist systems, or, but they're still sold to us as being for good or for the greater good. And it can be really difficult to sort of look through what is marketing speak and what is reality? What is AI snake oil and what is something that's genuinely good? And what are the kinds of things that you would look at to try and assess whether AI is trustworthy? And so we are trying to, you know, put a big question mark to a lot of what is said about AI, but at the same time, you know, we're not rejecting it altogether. We're not throwing it away. We're not saying it's useless. We're saying technology can be empowering, but you have to use it in a way that's genuinely actually empowering. Um, and that means having a different set of people at the table. Um, it means thinking about these systems critically and like really acknowledging that they are power systems in themselves, how they're used, you know, when they're used to, to take decisions. And so whose guidance do we accept on these, you know, powerful tools? Um, and similarly with policy, like who is actually making the policy? Do you have a diverse set of people um, and countries and, you know, different perspectives represented at the table where you're making policies? Or, you know, are you completely influenced by you know, tech, uh, the tech lobby or, or whatever? Like, so it's not just in the building of technology, it's also in the marketing of the technology and the policy making surrounding it. It's, you know, looking at things from so many different angles and perspectives but yeah, we need to get together and we need to be creative and think about better ways to use these technologies. Brigida, you left more or less optimistic after having done this series. Oh, so optimistic. You know, as Solana was saying, I think that the podcast really invites folks to dream a little bit and, and reimagine a future that works for more people and reimagine a future where the people who have power, not just in AI, but in all of tech, are us, you know? And so for me, that's just, it, it's hopeful. I'm very hopeful. Well, I thank you both for doing this. Where can folks find the podcast? The best place to find the podcast is internethealthreport.org. It's where you'll find all five episodes as they are released and where you also find data visuals and an explanation of what we mean by power in AI. You'll also find photos and interviews with the guests if you want to dig into, you know, these topics even more. Great. And Bridget, where else can we find it? Where else can we listen to the thing? Oh, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts. Is that the name of it? Yeah. <laughs> Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. I thank you both for joining me today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Justin. Remind
If you're enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast and subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. The name of that Mozilla podcast, IRL, is conceptually congruent with the next segment, which looks at how and why the experiences of white teens on social media affect their sense of self and identity in real life. In Digital White Racial Socialization, Social Media in the Case of Whiteness, researchers from Columbia, Yale, and the University of Michigan write that a, quote, better understanding of how future generations of white adolescents are normatively socialized into whiteness and being white on and through social media may be critical for disruptions to and divestments in these processes. Here's William Fry, the lead author. My name is William Fry. I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia School of Social Work in New York City. William, I noticed this week on Twitter that you had published a new paper, which is in the Journal of Research on Adolescence in a special series that they are doing on dismantling systems of racism and oppression during adolescence. Um, And you are the co-author of this paper, the lead author with Amanda Weiss at Yale uh, L. Monique Ward at University of Michigan and Courtney Cogburn at Columbia University. Before we get into the paper, can you just tell me a little bit about your research enterprise, how you come to the topic of digital white racial socialization? What is your research about? Absolutely. Yeah. So this paper started back in 2018. And I think my my research interests specifically in this area became more specified when I was working on a paper with Dr. Gogburn on her one of her dissertation papers, actually. Um, and it really helped me dive into the, you know, the family uh, psychology literature, which is written by mostly black and brown folks on racial ethnic socialization. It's mainly, you know, around individual or interpersonal messaging. Uh, around race, racism, racialization, and I had to had to dive into that literature to help out, you know, Courtney with her with her paper. That paper took me on a kind of a personal journey. Um, I began to, you know, think a lot about the ways that I was using social media as a young person, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old on Tumblr, on, you know, Twitter back in the day. Um, And, you know, how little I learned about race, racialization from my parents in direct ways. You know, I was learning probably in more indirect, subtle ways, um, but how much of those conversations for me happened online. And in these really unique spaces that I don't think I would have ever come across, whether I, you know, um, if I hadn't had had access to um, digital spaces. And I didn't see any of that being studied remarkably, right? In 2018, you know, uh, you know, young, young people, you know, people the age of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, all, you know, being on social media or being on tablets or, you know, learning a ton or, you know, having a lot of FaceTime with with the digital surfaces and interfaces. I didn't, you know, read a lot about that. And so, you know, not naively, you know, I, I, I understood that people had been talking about it, but just not in psychology. And so this, this paper was really important for me. And I had a lot of beautiful help from Dr. Cogburn. You know, there's this beautiful photo on Twitter that I shared of the first outline that happened in 2018 that's on a whiteboard. And it was such a, it was such a beautiful moment to capture it. But I also had the really wonderful moment of connecting to one of my past mentors through it. Um, I worked with Dr. El Monique Ward, who's a you know prolific media socialization scholar, but more traditional medias, you know, magazines, TV. Um, and I worked in her lab back in 2012. 
Um, and so as we kept in contact and I was able to contact her, you know, I think it was last, it might've been 2020, um, kind of towards the start of the pandemic. And then it was, it was a beautiful experience of bringing her on board to kind of connect, because I know she'd been thinking about these things, but it was wonderful to kind of connect her and, and with that conceptualization to have to have her be a part of that work too. And so that was kind of uh, the start of this paper that I re then realized needed to be a interdisciplinary conceptualization of the paper and bringing together multiple literatures. Let's talk about some of that intellectual context just quickly. Yeah. Media sure. socialization, uh, and then specifically white racial socialization yeah. for the listener that maybe isn't familiar with this particular practice. And I'm not either. Give us the basics. Absolutely. So, you know, in psychology, you know, there's been terminology and racial ethnic socialization and generally that is or socialization, socialization more generally. I'll, I'll start there. Socialization more generally is how people are you know, socialized into society, how they learn the ways of being in the world, the, the ways of doing things. Often the people that are focused on the most, the agents that are focused on the most are parents or guardians, the people that you, you know, young children would see the most. Now, this is really important because it changes across developmental stages. So, you know, socialization as a very young person changes when you're adolescence and those processes will change, but also those agents will change. So then peers become more important as you get older or neighborhoods or schools become more important as agents of socialization. And so it's really how, and this can be both overt and covert, right? So they can be both overt messaging of I'm teaching children how to behave around certain people, what to do, what not to do, teaching norms, value systems. But it also can be behavioral just showing, right? I look to my you know, parents, I look to the people around me to dictate how I should be behaving based on you know, incentive systems. So if I you know, yell out something in a room and people you know, treat me really negatively for doing that, I'm, I'm gonna learn an important lesson that doing things like that have consequences. Right. So this is similarly when you add a racialization to it. And this is the really challenging piece about studying this is in psychology. Psychology has a general understanding that systems of race are constructed and systems of racism are constructions. Right. They're social constructions or they don't exist naturally in the world or biologically. The other challenging piece to that is that they they often treat race as a demographic or as something that is biological and natural, that people have a race um, and that they will exist in the world naturally with a race. Now, writing this paper, it was challenging because we kind of needed to disrupt that later part that we treat white racial socialization as an orientation to the world and as things that people are doing in the world. They aren't necessarily what and who people are. They are things that you'll do in the world. And so that's what we're really trying to think through here is that how are the ways that children who are categorized as white or adolescents categorized as white, how are they doing things in the world and learning white ways of being that are very closely aligned with white domination, white supremacy, so on and so forth. Now, the thing I want to be very careful with is, though, I'm not saying that these are only ex white extremist or white nationalist ways of being. They also might be more, you know, white neoliberalism or, you know, white saviorism that are, are less focused on in, the, in the, the mainstream media as being dangerous or influential, so on and so forth. You have this concept of, of whiteness as doings, which I think kind of you're describing here a little bit. And, you know, that's, that's part of 
of how you're setting up this idea of white racial socialization, um, mm-hmm. how it works. Um, and then you kind of bring in this, you know, set of ideas around adolescent development. What, what is whiteness's doings? Yeah, so I, I started reading this paper by Sarah Ahmed, um, and it was called A Phenomenology of Whiteness. And she has a brilliant section in there called uh, Whiteness as an Orientation. For me, it really helped me think through oftentimes whiteness is thought of as an identity or is it something that I'm trying to cultivate for myself? And that's very much so, you know, how the way things are in psychology research. Racial identity is thought of a lot. With this paper, we kind of wanted to flip that on its head a little bit to get away from only focusing on individuals, that contexts actually have a way of manipulating people into behaving specific ways, into doing things a specific way, right? And so that can come from individuals of doing things in the world that align with forms of white domination or forms of white cultural domination or normativity. But it's also not just an individual's responsibility that when we're thinking about context, you know, let's say Colombia, for example, or let's say, you know, Twitter, that a context can actually have designed features that would support specific ways of behaving and um, punish or dissuade people from behaving other ways. And that is often aligned with a very dominant normative way of being. And so whiteness's doings is thinking about not just people identifying a specific way or, or the attitudes that they may have. I don't know if you've been seeing recently, you know, it's a lot of research and you often survey research that is like white people are more liberal around race than ever. You know, there it's a great awakening, I think it's been called. The challenge with the, that is, is that these scales are quite old and that white people often learn how to answer them in socially desirable ways. And that often doesn't properly interrogate the ways that they might be behaving on a day-to-day basis that might prove otherwise, that they aren't as as awoke as they think they are. And they might be behaving in ways that are more aligned with the cultural normativity around whiteness or white domination, right? And so when we think about doing, it's trying to get away from that very kind of stereotypical thinking around this is only about beliefs and attitudes and getting more into the everyday behaviors of people and how contexts might influence the ways that people are behaving in the world. So you blend this idea of whiteness as doings with adolescent development um, and a kind of basics uh, of that, which brings us to adolescence on social media. You know, the way that, that uh, social media has become such a substantial context in which, as you said at the outset, uh, young people kind of come to know themselves, know the world, take signals about how to behave. What do we know about the role of social media in the socialization of white children? That's a good question. You know, with this paper and, and with this type of research, it was kind of piecing together things uh, to try and fill in the gaps of what we don't know. You know, uh, one of the most most prolific thinkers about race online and on social media is Brandisha Tynes at USC, and she's been doing this work for, you know, 20 plus years. And we know a lot about, you know, youth of color experiencing racism, experiencing microaggressions, experiencing harm online and through social media. We also know, you know, from the work of like Robert Eshman, who's now at Columbia, thinking that people can also create counterpublics online and spaces where they're learning other things about race that aren't dominant narratives 
or it can encourage you know black and brown folks to speak up and speak out and and have the power to do that in digital spaces so you know i i i tend to you know like a, like a lot of my mentors before me tend to think of social media as a tool versus something that is good or bad but it can it can be used in the ways that people use it the challenge i think becomes that social media platforms may orient users in a very specific way that makes it harder to build counter publics or to do things that might not be in line with, you know, racialized norms, so on and so forth. And so that's kind of the, the main theme of this paper is that how do we begin to think about social media as possibly orienting specific types of racialization or new types of racialization um, in, in new ways and new forms? And, and what does that call us to think about these processes of racial socialization in different ways that aren't just messaging that aren't just how do I, you know, retroactively ask, you know, adults about what they learned about race as children or ask parents what they're teaching their kids about race, but really get into the nuts and bolts of the features of digital platforms that may be encouraging specific types of racial racialized participation and not others. For example, the last kick over the last two years, anti-racist behaviors and actions in the world how are social media platforms not encouraging those or preventing them from happening or preventing digital organizing from happening, right? These are all very socio-political um, questions that I think it would be really, really uh, important for us to think through as young folks are growing up in this increasingly digital world and learning so much about race and racism online, white kids uh, included, and often like not, in, not included in the conversation around, you know, how are white kids actually participating in racism online or participating in the disruption of racism online? It's often the study around black kids experiencing tons of racism online, but then there's that added shade of white innocence afterwards where it's like, we don't know anything about the white kids that are doing this or we're not actually going to study them. Um, and so that becomes a really important question when we're thinking about whiteness as, as an orientation or as doings is what are the things that are actually increasing inequity online around constructions of race? You point out at one point in the paper that, you know, some of this thinking is kind of counter to maybe some basic assumptions a lot of folks in tech have about the internet um, as a kind of neutral context or a, a democratizing space. Why do those conceptual frameworks matter? Um, or why do you try to counter those here? In this paper, for me, it was really important. In this work moving forward, it's really important to honor the thinkers that come before me. And while psychology hasn't, you know, specifically studied, you know, or, you know, racial ethnic socialization psychology hasn't specifically studied digital spaces, there's a very long history of digital scholars, communication scholars who study race and the internet. Um, you know, a ton of folks coming out of the out of the University of Michigan, when you think about, you know, Andre Brock or Lisa Nakamura, Brandisha Times, you know, like I stated earlier, Ruha Benjamin, so on and so forth. They're all thinking about how digital spaces have always had that kind of myth that, you know, there's that famous comic I'm sure you've heard of, right? It was the, the New Yorker, I think, or something like that, of um, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Right. It's this classic, you know, it's I feel like it's written about in every single book I read about race and the Internet. But it's that classic myth, right, that once you're online, nobody know will know or racism or race won't matter anymore. And in a lot of ways, 
not only is that increasingly untrue that we're becoming a very visual digitalized space where you know if somebody doesn't know what you look like it becomes kind of a red flag online um, but on top of that is that we have plenty of research to show that racism still matters in digital spaces as in, and is being rebuilt into systems. Whether the examples of that are, you know, black content creators being kicked off of sites, even though they don't break up any terms of service agreements, or activists being shut down and having to have many different accounts, or you, whether you want to talk about TikTok content creators going viral because they're white folks doing a similar dance and stealing content from other folks who are often, you know, young black folks creating that content. We have so many examples to show that that's untrue. And so for me, bringing that those types of frameworks in was to try and like, I think, to front end some of that research for psychologists who might want to get involved in digital racial socialization, and they don't make similar assumptions about the internet when doing that, right? That we might get here and now we're only going to focus on messaging from the internet versus viewing it as, as a dynamic designed space that, that a lot of thinkers from digital and, and communication studies have already shown that it is, right? And, and would make our research and studying in the future way more dynamic um, and important. You talk about specific social media affordances that uh, play into this conceptual framework uh, that you yeah. have here around uh, digital white racial socialization. Um, and there's a range of them. We should talk about a few, asynchronicity, permanence. Uh, maybe let's start there. It's, and this is, you know, interesting bringing them in. I, th I think that there are positives and, and negatives bringing these in. That, you know, bringing in affordances is, is figuring out what does something that I'm interacting with um, allow me to do? You know, uh, it's always used in very complex language and that's about as clear as I can put it. With, you know, for example, with asynchronicity, right? You know, if, if you and I are having a conversation, it's probably expected that if you ask me a question, I'm going to respond sometime soon or something will be going on, right? There might, I'll be head nodding or things like that. With, with social media, you get it most of the time. You get into a space where it's it's less of that immediate participation, and I could wait a whole day to respond to you. Now, that can be both positive and negative, right? There, there are times where that might encourage, you know, that pressure of responding immediately and possibly not thinking through what I'm saying, or there's that time where it might allow me to think about it more. Um, and provide a different response that I might, um, unless if we were, you know, just having a face-to-face -face conversation. The other thing I just mentioned, right, is that you also have cue absences, right? And so on social media, you can't see me nod my head. I can't see you nod your head, right? And so that, you know, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying. I have to think more about the tone of my message or the tone might be misconstrued, right? Um, or I have to do more interpreting, of what somebody is saying through text. Another example might be availability, right? And so in the past, if I was interacting with peers in school, if we're thinking specifically about racial ethnic socialization around peer influence, 
um, that might stop at when I leave school versus now I'm, you know, connected to my peers online and, you know, not only out throughout the day, but when I go home at night. Right. And so that only that not only has implications for, you know, you know, racism and racism being proliferated in digital spaces, and it can have a far reaching impact through digital spaces, but it also has, you know, um, implications for the things we might learn online that is very immersive um, and it's constant. Um, and, and it sometimes I think feels like it's really hard to escape from. Um, so those are, you know, a few implications, kind of the, some of the social media affordances. I think one of the things that I do want to pinpoint that I love about Dr. Andre Brock's work when he, uh, he wrote Digital Blackness, um, or sorry, Distributed Blackness, that he talks also about the cultural affordances of digital platforms, the things that platforms allow to do with specific cultural affordances. So the ways that people can use digital platforms to create culture, to shift culture, to perform culture, so on and so forth, that I think some of the social media affordance research sometimes misses. And so I really appreciated, you know, in his study of Black folks on Twitter and Blackness online, I think he's really pushed that, you know, that further by thinking about culture online too, um, which I think also plays into thinking about digital white racial socialization and the, and the ways that white youth are participating online. So you bring in this idea of racialized pedagogical zones, um, yeah. places where ideologies are enacted, where we are doing race as it were. Uh, and you've mentioned a couple of those already. I don't know, maybe I'll just ask you to kind of concentrate on that a little bit in your remarks. And you have this uh, this uh, phrase here, the digital white habitus. Uh, what is that? Eduardo Bonilla Silva has, talks about white habitus um, as this specific type of socialization, socializing tastes, the way you experience the world, and often proliferates in a way that um, creates deep segregation. Um, offline, that white folks are around white people and they don't want to be around folks of color. And it, you know, reinforces deep, you know, segregation and a lack of relationships with black and brown folks. That, you know, it's like creating your environment around whiteness, that the things I want in my world are in line with a very specific type of white domination. Now, that you know has had some pushback with Maggie Hagerman, who talked, um, who wrote the book White Kids, and she critiques this idea of white habitus being this inevitable thing that people experience, that white people experience specifically, and talks about children as having an agency that they can shift that if they want to, they can challenge that if they want to, so on and so forth. Now, so we highlighted both of those in the paper, but we also wanted to push forward this new term that the internet also might be creating a digital white habitus, that a, a way of creating and reinforcing digital segregation. And I think that this, where this conversation often stops is the digital divide of access to the internet versus once we get on the internet, there actually might be segregation and divides once we get there. Once we're in the space, in the networks, in the interfaces of the internet, there are also, you know, forms of segregation. And by segregation, I don't just mean separation, but inequitable resource distribution, inequitable ability to access um, the tools of the internet or the tools of spaces. And so this is kind of what we wanted to think through is, you know, how, how are digital spaces online also creating this kind of white segregation and habitus. You know, for example, um, 
Avriel Epps Darling at uh, she's at Harvard and she did you know research on I believe it was Spotify um, but talking about the automation of digital systems and young folks and people being pushed into recommendation algorithms based on demographic information, the ways that these automated systems are funneling people into specific experiences online, right? And that can be very informed by specific design elements that are heavily racialized and through, you know, through the imagination of the creators of these sites. And so I think it's, you know, really important for us if we're going to think about the experiences of adolescents online, we also need to think about the ways that sites were designed to inform a specific type of user and to be for a specific type of user and to kind of other very traditional types of users, you know, such as black and brown folks, such as, you know, um, non-binary folks, trans folks, um, the ability to access specific types of information, folks with disabilities, you know, you have a new type of marginalization online that needs to be, you know, really at the forefront of the ways that we study these sites and in, in the all throughout the process, right? At the beginning of creating a site, even though those are often the times where these sites go at the fastest, we need to get this out there. We need to cut corners to kind of push the envelope. And often the cut corners that they make are, are cutting away from the possible possibility of certain users being able to access the space and use it to the best of their abilities. Most of this paper is about socialization, you know, broadly, um, not about, you know, necessarily the problem of white supremacy um, as we think of it as a sort of extremist behavior activity. Um, But you do touch on violence and uh, white supremacy and and even recruitment into, you know, white nationalist or white supremacist groups. How does that come in? How do those problems kind of come into your thinking uh, here? It was hard to include that. We wanted to include an example that was very pertinent. You know, and the example we have is a tweet from a white mother who was shared, you know, probably a hundred thousand times in 2019. And you know, this is this is something that happens cyclically. So, you know, we've seen the same tweets earlier this year when you had, you know, the, the shootings in Buffalo, you know, and and I think white parents get very afraid of digital spaces as kind of this new age stranger danger. Right. It's it's this new age. I don't know who my children are talking to online and they're in danger of being recruited into groups and becoming one of these white kids that, you know, kills people and engaged in racialized violence. Now, you know, the way we engage it here is not to, you know, dismiss that as a possibility, but to expand the reality that these white parents are often engaged in processes of socialization of their white kids already. You know, and, and what we know from research is that white kids often go online or often engage in their own, you know, practices of self-socialization to reaffirm their beliefs when they're in adolescence, not to necessarily create, you know, extremist different ones. You know, so there has to be some conversation around the cultivation of a, a fertile ground those types of beliefs to sit in right and so oftentimes i think we see white parents try to separate themselves from that type of conversation that has nothing to do with me they're engaged you know or or you know after these events happen um we don't know what happened right versus engaging in some type of um reflection interrogation of the ways that white society tries to insulate itself and teach 
about race and do race in ways that can be violent and often are violent. And that violence often doesn't come out as just school shootings or as just shootings. It comes out in other ways um, and in ways that are often not categorized as racialized violence, but ways that really protect a normative white structure. And so how do we begin to kind of look at the white family structure as a place that is cultivating these types of ideals that is creating the inequity of the society that we live in. And it was really important for us to not get lost in the internet is a scary place where recruiters are, be afraid, be careful. It's like, how do we include all of ourselves in these conversations um, and really look at this as a collective issue that we all need to be a part of. And it's not placing the blame somewhere else. It's looking inwards and looking collectively of how do we build these types of collectives and what are the questions we have to ask one another and ourselves around the ways that we are doing this inequitable practice, these inequitable practices in the world that are often, you know, just situated as race or just, you know, situated as extreme forms of racism. Now, this paper is presumably for other folks in your field, other people working in um, psychology, developmental psychology, social work. Um, you say that you hope it will open up you know, new directions for future research um, amongst academics. But if I were to put you in front of social media executives who are designing these systems and do have responsibility for the types of affordances that you've discussed, I don't know. What would you hope they take away from a paper like this? I think there are a couple of layers to it. You know, I, I think that the first thing I say is that, you know, and I, and I don't want to get too deep into this because I know less about the design literature and there's a ton of folks that do, you know, design justice. But there are also, you know, the questions that I would ask or, or kind of push forward is that what are the implications of the design decisions you're making? That code is just not, not just code. It has implications for the ways that are, um, people are able to behave in space, the things that people are able to do, but also the ways that we, you know, moderate communities. And so how do we, you know, involve more people in those conversations and be flexible and dynamic to change when something is not working? It's often kind of batten down the hatches when, when things go wrong versus how do we, you know, shift, be fluid, be willing to think for things to end if they need to end. Um, so I think most of my conversations would be around that and really a deep connection to the people that are using these spaces and and, and what are the implications of that. The other thing is that I, I think, you know, and I think Twitter has done some of this, but just opening the doors for people to study, to study and engage and trying to understand what's happening online, not just the scary things, but also the really beautiful things. You know, there are some of the most amazing community experiences I've ever had have been in digital spaces. And so I think, you know, I, I, this paper definitely sets off some alarm bells, but it also, I think, highlights some of the, the abilities that for digital spaces to offer, you know, a deep reckoning with this offline digital habitus, you know, white digital habitus. Um, and what are the ways, the creative ways that people are organizing in digital spaces or shifting their understandings of race and racism? Um, even later in life, you know, you know, we're even seeing, you know, older white folks trying to engage in a relearning or, you know, a re-socialization of the things that they were learning when they were younger. So I think most of my conversations will start at that place. 
but I think it it really involves with the value systems. You know, I think it's it's a really hard to convince a social media company that is worried about specific things when they need to also include other things in that um, in their top priorities, right? Is that what is the impact this is going to have in the world? How do I include those folks in the in these conversations and the development throughout the process, right? Not just at the end when when things go wrong. But in, in the creation stages and begin to slow down a little bit, right? Moving fast has created some things and it's also created things that are that are really harmful for people. And, and also, I think breaking away from the whiteness and white domination and white supremacy are only these extreme examples and starting to get into the nuances of the ways that that's practiced online. Um, the things that would not get qualified as as reestablish inequity, but are still there. And I think Ruha Benjamin has a, a beautiful quote around that of like, uh, it was in her book, Race After Technology, around as, as long as we focus on only the most extreme acts of violence as the examples, we lose all the ones in between, you know, the way that it's built in our textbooks and things like that. Um, the way that it's built into the interface, into the design, um, that becomes innocuous and neutral versus, you know, also encouraging those types of participation. Yeah, I grew up in the South and, you know, race and race issues have always been something that I've struggled with and tried to, mm -hmm. to learn more about and to understand and to understand my own failings in, in this regard. But, you know, certainly I think in, in the community where I grew up, you were kind of thought of yourself as a white person is not a racist as long as you didn't have a Confederate flag on your yeah. bumper sticker or you didn't um, actively engage in uh, use of a, a oppressive language or yeah. uh, what have you. But um, of course, kind of come to a very different understanding yeah. as an adult. And I suppose we're doing that as a society to some extent. Yeah, there's there's a the work of George Yates. So so on the side of all of this, you know, I also do kind of intergroup dialogue or intragroup dialogue intervention work um, with white folks. And so the work of George Yancey has been so helpful for that around the idea that white folks can't be autonomous from racism, that we can't just will ourselves out of being connected to systems of racism, or I can't just learn myself out of it. It requires a specific level of collective involvement that I can't just, you know, harmlessly separate myself and I'm no longer a part of the problem. As long as I exist in this bodily form and am constructed this way, I need to take responsibility for that social location. And that requires me for, to get collectively involved. And it requires me to do specific things in the world and do things differently than I've been taught. And so that's kind of where we want to get deeper too. is, you know, thinking about whiteness as a doing allows us to push to that space versus just cultivating positive, positive white identities, right? That's often the end point. You know, people are going to say, you know, the helms, you know, ladder of, of white identity, and we need to get to this specific point. And when we think about whiteness as doings, we can actually shift behaviors, and we can shift the ways that people practice on a daily basis versus just cultivating different senses of self. I've asked you what you might say to a social media executive uh, who had read this paper, but if there was a, a parent listening to this podcast, um, a white parent who's thinking about the experience that their child is having, yeah. what might you say to them? What should they be 
you know, watching out for or doing if, if they are sympathetic to types of ideas and conclusions that you've shared here? Yeah, I think it's opening up the conversation, right? It's, it's, it's a, rather than it being a fearful, like, frightful, what is my child doing online? I think it becomes a, not only a conversation of how my children are framing themselves in the world, what they're learning about race, racism, whiteness, but also what am I learning about whiteness and racism? What have I been teaching my child? Um, How do I begin to shift those for myself, right? I think it's never too late to start that type of internal reflective work because it is lifelong work. We've been socialized since we were very young to be in the world a specific way, to do things in the world a specific way, to think and learn specific ways, that it's never too late to engage in those types of processes with our children, to open up that space of feeling, to open up that space of uh, really challenging um, the core of what it makes us as you know white people or white people in the world. And for that to be an engaged process uh, and not a fearful process of don't don't do that, don't think that, but an inquisitive process, a curious process. And I think that can never be separation. I think people often go to the point of, I want to separate myself from this because this makes me guilty, shameful, um, nervous, embarrassed, and really embracing our inherent connections to histories to systems of domination, to the acts that we do in the world that are connected to current days of domination, you know, current systems of domination. If we confront those realities, it becomes a lot easier and a lot, the ways of of shifting and disrupting those become clearer. Um, And we can build those conversations, you know, build those relationships without worrying about outing ourselves because we're already out. We are already out in the world as being connected to those. And so I think that that is the process that I've gone through that I would also encourage white parents to go through because I think it would make parenting easier to talk talk to children about where they're socially located in the world. They are not white. They'll be constructed as white. And what does that mean? And and how do we disrupt those realities? William, thank you for speaking to me about this today. Um, What's next for you? What's the next project? Yeah, so so I am on to my dissertation. Um, I am uh, doing a community-based research study on Reddit for my dissertation, um, looking at white folks online. And so the beautiful thing that Dr. Cogburn has pushed me to do is to create this conceptual work that will set up my future experimental and ethnographic studies. And so um, this is kind of a proof of concept of, of looking at a very unique racial context on Reddit. And, and how does racial socialization show up for these white users? So I'm really excited about that. It's going it's to be a take a few years, but very excited to kind of get in, engaged in that work and working with uh, the Citizens and Technology Lab at Cornell um, and, and Jay Nathan Mateus, who's, who's wonderful and one of my you know, side mentors. So um, that's the next for me. And then, you know, just continuing to read and teach and do all the things. Thank you so much for speaking to me. Yeah, thanks, Justin. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.